Chapter One, Part One of Zone Policeman Eighty Eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zone Policeman Eighty Eight A Close Range Study of the Panama Canal and Its Workers by Harry F. Frank. Chapter One, Part One. Strip by strip there opened out before me, as I climbed the thousand stairs to the red-roofed administration building, the broad panorama of Panama and her bay. Below, the city of closely packed roofs and three-topped plazas compressed in a scallop of the sun-gleaming Pacific, with its peaked and wooded islands to far Taboga tilting motionless away to the curve of the earth. Behind, the low, irregular jungled hills stretching hazily off into South America. On the third-story landing I paused to wipe the light sweat from forehead and hatband, then pushed open the screen door of the passageway that leads to police headquarters. Hmm, what military service have you had? asked the captain, looking up from the letter I had presented, and swinging half round in his swivel chair to fix his clear eyes upon me. None. No, he said slowly in a wondering voice, and so long grew the silence and so plainly did there spread across the captain's face the unspoken question, well, then what the devil are you applying here for, that I felt all at once the stern necessity of putting in a word for myself, or lose the day entirely. But I speak Spanish, and... Ah! cried the captain, with a rising inflection of awakened interest. That puts another face on the matter. Slowly his eyes wandered, with the faraway look of inner reflection, to the vacant chair of the chief on the opposite side of the broad flat desk, then out the wide open window, and across the shimmering roofs of Alcon to the far green ridges of the youthful republic, ablaze with the unbroken tropical sunshine. The whir of a telephone bell broke in upon his meditation. In sharp, clear-cut phrases he answered the questions that came to him over the wire, hung up the receiver, and pushed the apparatus away from him with a forceful gesture. Inspector, he called suddenly, but a moment having passed without response, he went on in his sharp-cut tones. How do you think you will like police work? I believe I should. The captain shuffled for a moment one of his several stacks of unfolded letters on his desk. Well, it's the most thankless damned job in creation, he went on, almost dreamily. But it certainly gives a man much touch with human nature from all angles. And, well, I suppose we do some good. Somebody's got to do it, anyway. Of course, I suppose it would depend on what class of police work I got, I put in, recalling the warning of the writer of my letter of introduction that you may get assigned to some dinky little station and never see anything of the zone. I'm better at moving around than sitting still. I notice you have policemen on your trains, or perhaps in special duty languages would be... Yes, I was thinking along that line, too, said the captain. He rose suddenly from his chair, and led the way into an adjoining room, busy with several young Americans over desks and typewriters. Inspector, he said, as a tall and slender yet muscular man of Indian erectness and noticeably careful grooming rose to his feet. Here's one of those rare people, an American who speaks some foreign languages. Have a talk with him. Perhaps we can arrange to fix him up both for his good and our own. Ever done police duty? began the inspector when the captain had returned to the corner office. No. 
Military, sir? Not that either. Well, we usually require it, mused the inspector slowly, flashing his diamond ring. But with your special qualifications, perhaps, you'd probably be of most use to us in plain clothes, he continued after a dozen questions as to my former activities. We could put you in uniform for the first month or six weeks until you know the isthmus, and then... Our greatest trouble is burglary, he broke off abruptly, rising to reach a copy of the canal's own laws. If you have nothing else on hand, you might run these over, and the police rules and regulations, he added, handing me a small flat volume bound in light brown imitation leather. I sat down in an armchair against the wall and fell to reading amid the clickety-click of typewriters, telephone calls even from far-off Cologne on the Atlantic, and the constant going and coming of a Negro orderly in shining iron khaki uniform. By and by the inspector drifted into the main office, where his voice blended for some time with that of the captain. At length he came back bearing a copy of the Day Star and Herald, turned back to the Australia Panama pages, so rarely opened in the zone. Just run us off a translation of that, if you don't mind, he said, pointing to a short paragraph in Spanish. Some two minutes later, I handed him the English version of the account of a near duel between two Panamanians, and took once more to reading. It was more than an hour later that I was again interrupted. You'll want to catch the 525 back to Corazel? inquired the inspector. Mr. Blank, give him transportation to Culeba and back, and an order for physical examination. You might fill out this application, Blank, he added, handing me a long legal sheet. Then, in case you are appointed, that much will be done. The document began with the usual name, birthplace, and so on. There followed the information that the appointee must be at least five foot eight, weigh one hundred and forty, chest at least thirty-four inches. Then suddenly near the bottom of the back of the sheet my eyes caught the startling words. Unless you are sure you are a man of physical appearance far above the average, do not fill out this application. I was suddenly aware of a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. The blank all but slipped from my nerveless fingers. Then all at once there came back to me the words of some chance acquaintance of some far-off time and place, words which were the only memory that remained to me of the speaker, except that he had lived long and gathered much experience. Bluff, my boy, is what carries a man through the world. Act as if you're sure you are and can, and you'll generally make the other fellow think so. I sat down at a desk and filled out the application in my most self-confident flourish. Go to Calabria tomorrow said the inspector, as I bade the room good day, and stepped forth with my most military stride and bearing, and report back here Friday morning. I ascended to the world below, not by the long perspective of stairs that leads down and across the gully to the heart of Akon, but by a shortcut that took me quickly into a foreign land. The graveled highway at the foot of the hill I might not have guessed was an international boundary had I not chanced to notice the instant change from the trim, screened zone buildings, each in its green lawn, to the featureless architecture of a city where grass is all but unknown. For the formalities of crossing this border are the same as those of crossing any village street. It was my first entrance into the land of the Panamanos, technically known on the zone as Spigotis, and familiarly, with a tinge of despite, as Spix, because the first Americans to arrive in the land found a few natives and cabmen who claimed to speak it to English. To Americans direct from the States, Panama City ranks still as rather a miserable, dawdling village, but that is due chiefly to lack of perspective. Against the background of Central America, 
it seemed almost a great, certainly a flourishing, city. Even today there are many who complain of its unpleasant odors. To those who have lived in other tropical cities, its scent is like the perfumes of Araby. And none but those can in any degree realize what Tio Sam has done for the place. Towards sunset I passed through a gateway with scores of fellow countrymen, all as composedly at home as in the heart of their native land. Across the platform stood a train distinctively American in every feature, a bilious yellow train divided by the baggage car into two sections, of which the five second-class coaches behind the engine, with their wooden benches, were densely packed in every available space with workmen and laborers' wives, from Spaniards to ebony negroes, with the average color decidedly dark. In the first-class cars, at the Panama end, were Americans, all but exclusively white Americans, with only here and there a spaghetti, with his long greased hair, his finger rings, and his effeminate gestures, and even a negro or two. For though Uncle Sam may permit individual states to do so, he may not himself openly abjure before the world his assertion as to the equality of all men by enacting Jim Crow laws. We were soon off. Settled back in the ample seat of the first real train I had boarded in months, with the roar of its length over the smooth and solid roadbed, the deep-voiced masculine whistle, instead of the painful, puerile screech that had recently assailed my ear, I all but forgot I was in a foreign land. The fact was recalled by the passing of the train guard, an erect and self-possessed young American in Texas hat, khaki uniform, and leather leggings, striding along the aisle with a jerking, half-arrogant swing of the shoulders. So, perhaps, might I, too, soon be parading across the isthmus. It was not, to be sure, exactly the role I had planned to play on the zone. I had come, rather with the hope of shouldering a shovel, and descending into the canal with other workmen, that I might, some day, solemnly raise my right hand and boast, I helped dig it. But that was in the callow days before I had arrived and learned the awful gulf that separates the sacred white American from the rest of the canal zone world. Besides, had I not always wanted to be a policeman and twirl a club and stalk with heavy, law-compelling tread ever since I had first stared speechless upon one of those noble beings on my first trip out into the world twenty-one years before? It was not without effort that I rose in time next morning to continue on the 737 from Corozal across another bit of the zone. Exactly thus should one first see the great work, piecemeal, slowly, unless he will go home with it all in an undigested lump. The train rolled across a stretch of almost uninhabited country, with a vast plain of broken rock on the right, plunged unexpectedly through a short tunnel, and stopped at a station perched on the edge of a ridge above a small zone town, backed by some vast structure, above which here and there a huge crane loomed against the sky of dawn. Another mile, and the collectors were announcing, as brazenly as if they challenged a few spicks on board to correct them, Peter McGill! Peter McGill! We were already moving on again, before I guessed that by this noise they designated none other than the famous Pedro Miguel. The sun rose suddenly as we swung sharply to the left and rumbled across a girdleless bridge. Barely had I time to discover that we were crossing the Great Canal itself, and to catch a brief glimpse of the jagged gulf in either direction, before the train had left it behind, as if the sight of the world-famous channel were not worth a pause, and was roaring on through a hilly country of perpetual summer. A peculiarly shaped reservoir spread past on the left. Twice or thrice more the green horizon rose and fell, and at 7.30 we drew up at the base of Culebra, the zone capital. On the screen veranda of a somewhat sooty and dismal building high up near the summit of the town, another and I were pacing anxiously back and forth when, well on in the morning, 
An abrupt and rather gloomy-faced American dashed into the building in one of the rooms thereof, snapping over his shoulder as he disappeared, One of you! The other had precedence. Then soon from behind the wooden shutters came a growl of, Next! And two moments later I was standing in the reputed costume of Adam upon the scales within. At about ten-second intervals, a monosyllable fell from the lips of the morose American as he delved into my personal makeup from crown to toe, with all the instrumental circumspection known to his secret-discovering profession. Then, with a gruff, Dress, he sat down at a table to scratch a few fantastic marks on the blank I had brought, and hand it to me as I caught up my last garment and turned to the door. But, alas, tight-sealed. And all the day, though carrying the information in my pocket, I must live in complete ignorance of whether I had been found lacking an eye or a lung, for sooner would one have asked his future of the scowling parquets than venture to invoke a hint thereof from that furrow-browed being from the land of brusqueness. Meanwhile, as if it had been thus planned to give me such opportunity, I stood at the very vortex of canal interest and fame, with nearly an entire day before the evening train should carry me back to Corzal. I descended to the observation platform, here, at last, at my very feet, was the famous cut known to the world by the name of Calabra, a mighty channel a furlong wide, plunging sheer through Snake Mountain, that rocky range of scrub-wooded hills severing the continental divide. At first view, the scene was bewildering. Only gradually did the eye gather details out of the mass. Before and beyond were pounding rock drills, belching locomotives. There arose the rattle and bump of long trains of flat cars on many tracks the crash of falling boulders, the snort of the straining steam shovels heaping the cars high with earth and rock. Everywhere were groups of little men, some working leisurely, some scrambling down into a rocky bed of the canal or dodging the clanging trains, all far below and stretching endless in either direction, while over all the scene hovered a veritable Pittsburgh of smoke. All long-heralded sights, such as the nature of the world and man, are at first glimpse disappointing, to this rule, the great Calabra Cut was no exception. After all, this was merely a hill, a moderate ridge, this backbone of the isthmus, the sundering of which had sent its echoes to all corners of the earth. The long-fed imagination had led one to picture a towering mountain, a very Andes. But as I looked longer, noting how little by comparison were the trains I knew to be of regulation U.S. size, how literally tiny were the scores upon scores of men far down below who were doing this thing, its significance regained bit by bit its proper proportions. Train after train load of the spoil of the cut ground away towards the Pacific, and here men had been digging steadily, if not always earnestly, since a year before I was born. The gigantic scene recalled to the mind the industrial army of which Carlyle was prone to preach, with the same discipline and organization as an army in the field, and every now and then, to bear out the figure, there burst forth the mighty cannonade, not of war, but of peace and progress, in the form of earth-upheaving and house-rocking blasts of dynamite, tearing away the solid rock below at the very feet of the town. I took to the railroad, and struck on further into the unknown country. Almost before I was well started I found myself in another town, yet larger than Culebra, and with the name Empire in the station building, and nearly every rod of the way between had been lined with villages of negroes and all breeds and colors of canal workers. So on again along a broad macadamized highway that bent and rose through low bushy ridges, past an army encamped in wood and tin barracks on a hillside, with khaki uniformed soldiers a horse and a foot enlivening all the roadway in the neighboring fields. Never a mile without its town. 
how different will all this be when the canal is finished and all its community has gone to Alaska, or has scattered itself over the face of the earth, and dense tropical solitude has settled down once more over the scene. Panama, they had said, is insupportably hot. Comparing it with other lands, I knew, I could not but smile at the notion. Again, it was the lack of perspective. Sweat ran easily, yet so fresh the air and so refreshing the breeze sweeping incessantly across from the Atlantic that even the sweating was almost enjoyable. Hot? Yes, like June on the Canadian border, though not like July. It is hot in St. Louis on an August Sunday, with all the refreshment doors tight closed, to strangers. Hot in the cotton fields of Texas. But with these plutonic corners, the heat of the zone shows little rivalry. The way led round a cone-shaped hill crowned by another military camp with the stars and stripes flapping far above, until I came at last in sight of the renowned Chagres, seven miles above Culebra, to all appearances a meek and harmless little stream, spanned by a huge new iron bridge, and forbidden to come and play in the unfinished canal by a little dam of earth that a steam shovel will some day eat up in a few hours. Here, where it ends and the flat country begins, I descended into the cut, dry and waterless, with a stone quarry bottom. A sharp climb out on the opposite side, and I plunged into rampant jungle, half expecting snake bites on my exposed ankles, another preconceived notion, and at length falling into a narrow jungle trail that pitched down through a dense-grown gully, came upon a fenced compound with several zoned buildings on the banks of the Chagres, down to which sloped a broad green lawn. Here dwells hale and ruddy old Fritz, for long years keeper of the philovograph, that measures and gives warning of the rampages of the Chagres. Fritz will talk to you in almost any tongue you may choose, as he can tell you an adventure in almost any land, all with a captivating accent, and in the vocabulary of a man who has lived long among men and nature. Nor are Fritz's opinions those gleaned from other men or the printed page. So we fell to fanning ourselves this January afternoon on the screened and shaded veranda above the Chagres, and old Fritz, lighting his pipe, raised his slippered feet to the screen railing, and tossing away the charred remnant of a match, began, Without far, there is no progress. When all the world is at peace, all the world goes to sleep. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by Todd